hi, hello, welcome to episode 60. That's right, six zero. That is a long time. That is a lot of podcasts. That is a lot of hours of us. You could binge us for a very long time. This is episode 60 of Trail Society, brought to you by our friends over at Free Trail. I'm Corinne Malcolm. I'm Keely Henninger. And I'm Hillary Allen. And we've gotten better and better at saying our names enthusiastically over 60 episodes. I feel like we should put together a compilation. Mm, that would be interesting. Yeah. yeah, maybe for episode 100. <laughs> <laughs> oh, before we hit record, we were uh, giving uh, Keely a hard time in particular about her Havelina hangover. Um, and she didn't even she didn't even drink. She didn't even race. She was out curing and pacing our friend Jeff Stern, Mr. Jeff Stern. How are you feeling? Mm, I feel pretty good. Definitely tired. Like today, I didn't ask for an off day, but Tyler gave me one and I was very hope- open to that. It was really great. I feel like you get hung over just from being like out in the desert in the dry heat with all your friends, just like dancing around, running around, running a little bit, yelling a little bit. Like it's a crazy rave in the middle of the desert. It is so cool. I was like, Man, Western states, like, again, it's only 100 I've done, so it's my only point of reference, so no offense, Western states, but, like, maybe take note of how to have a finish line party. <laughs> I mean, everyone take note, right? It's like everyone oh, wants cool. to go. We'll talk about some UTMB drama here in a little bit, but it's like everyone wants to go to that race, but Havelina is, like, the true the true party, I feel like. So um, I saw that Jeff was dressed as a ghost. Keely, did you have a corresponding costume yep. as as crew? Yeah, I was the Ghostbuster. Nice. Yeah, me and Lottie were Ghostbusters. I got caught on film by Maj, who was out there, and he was like, what's going on here? What is what is the costume? <laughs> and I'm like, well, I'm a Ghostbuster, so I'm hunting him, so you can't let anybody catch him. And he had a little, like, ghost move that he had to do whenever he felt down that I made him do. <laughs> and it was his first hundred and it was just a really good day for him like he went out for with so many goals of just like learning and listening to himself and like checking those boxes of like did I fuel how I wanted to did I like drink how I wanted to did I listen to my crew did I like have a good attitude all of these things and he you know checked all of those boxes which I feel like for your first hundred is just so cool and it was really good for me I think to go be out in the racing again like after kind of a disappointing day at States not only just to be back with the community, but also just to see like people doing a hundred and like seeing how hard it is, but also how fun it can be. And how, if you, you know, really do stay true to yourself and listen to yourself, you can, you can get it done. And yeah, it was really fun. Yeah. It looked, it looked really cool. I was supposed to be out there to help Dylan, um, out with some free trail stuff, but opted to, to not travel kind of last minute last week to stay home a little bit longer and it was definitely the right call for me, but definitely a little bit of FOMO or maybe it was JOMO over here in, uh, in Washington, Stephen had COVID, which was really part of the reason I like, couldn't risk, like I did not get COVID, but we were like masked in our house and I was like living in our guest bedroom type of thing. So didn't want to risk getting on a plane and potentially if I was, was sick, bringing it to Havelina. So stayed home, did a bunch of good running. We were also complaining about how cold it is in Portland and Seattle. And then we realized that it's like 18 degrees in Boulder. So Hillary, how are you doing with this little first taste of winter in Colorado? 
Um, I think I'm going back and forth. Uh, I mean, honestly, I basically had to rally um, some motivation with the help of my friends on um, Saturday and Sunday to kind of get in some some longer training runs. And thankfully for like a longer, I'm always super hesitant because usually snow runs can kind of like perturb my ankles. And I've, you know, in the midst of like trying to be super cautious, like building back mileage and strength is particularly in like my sensitive ankles and all the the supporting muscles and tendons. So just like being super diligent about where I run um, and now kind of avoiding the excess snow. So it's kind of, it just happens every year. I make, made kind of a joke over the weekend of like snow training is always a staple and a buildup for any tropical race that I do. So <laughs> uh, yeah, it's just basically yeah. frozen humidity instead of, um, you know, the, the real humidity both Keely and I are going to deal with in Thailand. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. Just a slightly different, different flavor. Uh, it's maybe extra encouraging to go, go get in a sauna cause you actually just need to warm up. Yeah. Um, yeah, that's, that's pretty brutal. I'm happy. We did get snow up high here. Like mm. I definitely made changes to my weekend run plans because I didn't want to bring traction. I know the deal is snow type of thing. So we definitely had low snow come in early last week here and it's supposed to be really wet this week so not looking forward to the onslaught of rain headed our way but we need it so that's okay mm -hmm. that's neither here nor there and just kind of moving right along if you're a longtime listener of trail society you know that we've been drinking ag1 for i don't know like two years at this point it's part of my daily routine even though today was a rest day I had AG1 kind of after my morning coffee towards a second breakfast because while I did not run today, I needed second breakfast because I had such a great big weekend of training, which felt really, really good. I know, Keely, with your post-Havelina hangover, did you uh, did you reach for any AG1 to help with those energy levels, help with those little feel-good feelings today on your rest day as well? I actually did, yeah. I had one like an hour ago because I was crashing so hard. Feeling like, peppy. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know if I feel peppy, like, but I definitely feel peppier than I did. <laughs> nice. As I tell athletes, placebos are real and we will take anything we can get. But if you would also like to test out AG1, AG1 again is the supplement that we've trusted for a long time to provide our bodies with the daily nutrients it needs. And we've been a partner for a long time for those reasons. And if you also want to take ownership over your health, it can start with AG1. So try AG1 today and get a free one-year supply of vitamin uh, D3K2. It's a good combination. It helps with the uh, the toxicity of too much vitamin D, essentially. And five free AG1 travel packs with your first purchase. And you're going to go over to a slightly different... Um, uh, I guess website we're moving over to now drinkag1.com slash trail society. Again, that's over at drinkag1.com slash trail society. Check it out today. Okay. So we're going to dive a little bit into the news. Um, and the news being the drama. I don't know, Ooh. Hillary, you don't, you're not in the PNW like Keely and I, so the drama felt well, extra, extra real over here, but this is the, the UTMB corporation V grassroots events that yeah. came out when this comes out, this will have happened almost two weeks ago, I guess at mm -hmm. that point. And there's gonna be more and more coming out about this as we try to get to the kind of bottom of what's going on exactly. And again, that's uh UTMB announced a, a, an event in Whistler that happens to be after um, Gary Robbins' wham was kind of forced out of Whistler and it made it feel like collusion. It made it feel like 
UTMB Ironman was able to throw around some weight and some money with Vail. It's kind of like a match made in, in heaven, right? No one likes Vail that owns all of our ski resorts and no one seems to like UTMB Ironman. So it's this perfect combo of of events. And um, Keely, I was saying that, you know, you and I feel that ripple in the PNW in a big way. Like this is our backyard feeling. And I was wondering if that same ripple is is on its way out to the Boulder community too with, with over well, by Hillary. Yeah, I mean, I mean, you say Vail Mountain Ski Resorts, hello, that's up yeah, in Colorado. That's you guys. <laughs> like, so sorry, Carrie Roberts, please don't blame us. Um, but I would like to say, I mean, this literally, um, speaking of long runs on Saturday, this conversation occupied probably the majority of like a six hour run. Um, yeah, totally. We're kind of like just going back and forth on it. I mean, I read Gary Rob- Gary Robbins, um, his, his blog about it. Um, yeah, it seems like we're kind of because I mean UTMB has come out to Colorado and kind of taken, um, not taken, but like they're they're running like a UTMB event in Fruta, which was notoriously a very grassroots like inclusive event for like all distances, like races of all distances. So it's definitely, I think it is. It's kind of working its way across the United States. It has States. a flavor. It is a very yeah. specific flavor that seems to be. Uh, off-putting right because we are a sport that is like traditionally anti-establishment right like we just want to run around in the woods in our short shorts or long shorts with our our snacks and like not be bothered type of thing and some people are referring to this as referring to this as growing pains but to me it doesn't feel like growing pains it feels like a monopoly it feels like corporation it feels like this one entity that would like all of our money. And there was this Trailrunner Mag piece came that came out. And I, and I like the folks over at Trailrunner Mag. I have so much respect for Zoe and Brian and Abby and kind of that co- like that key cohort that works on those pieces. And in it though, um, someone from the Ironman, um, Ironman UTMB group said, you know, oh, there's room for everyone. There's room for us and there's room for the small grassroots race race organizations. And and to me, that feels so disingenuous because if like, you know, it's one thing to be an elite who needs to get one race done to make it to UTMB. If you're the average person, you need on average 11 stones. And remember, stones are like an imaginary lottery ticket, right? You need 11 of them on average to get into the lottery. That doesn't mean that you're doing a UTMB event a year. That means you're doing two or three UTMB events a year every year because stones are only good for two years at your one shot to get into the race, which means that you are doing this year after year after year to try to accumulate these imaginary stones to get in. So it's one thing to be an elite and be like, I've got to go to one race, right? I've got to go to one race and do pretty well and I'll, I'm in, done, check. Like not as big of a deal maybe. For everyone else, it, it's that is the monopoly, right? That's the like, that's the barrier to entry. It's like, not only do you need to do these races, but you need to fly across the country, across the world. Like, they're like, oh, no, we're trying to bring trail running to more people. We're trying to make it more accessible. We're trying to get more people involved in the sport. And instead, they added a barrier to entry with the stone lottery system. Before we used to go to our Gorge 100k, our Lake Sonoma 50, our Chuckin' Up 50k, our Squamish 50 and, you know, accrue three points or four points and, and, you know, do a race in Idaho and accrue three more p- points, right? It wasn't like a, they didn't have to be by UTMB events, which meant that, you know, you had a, a broader pipeline to get in, but for UTMB, they weren't getting the money from each of us signing up for those races. And so this gives them like complete control. This gives them the money pipeline. And to me, it's just like, it's disingenuous. It's it's disingenuous to say there's room for everyone 
on one side and then on on the other side say like no, not say but for us to know the way to get into this race is to pay them hundreds of dollars every year and travel all over the world to accrue imaginary stones like i don't know i just it's given me the ick in a big way as the gen z kids would say it's given me the ick and i'm my life intersects UTMB in so many weird ways as a person in the media, as a sponsored athlete, as a person who has done their races and, you know, had been planning to do UTMB this next year. Like I'm in this weird crossroads right now where it's like, I literally have no idea what I'm doing in 2024. And in part, it's because I'm like very frustrated by the, by this really big race organization that we've given a really long leash to. Like we've said, Hey, UTMB run with it. We'll give you the benefit of the doubt. And now I'm sitting here going like, I think we gave them too long of a leash and I don't know how to, I don't know if or how we can find an equilibrium again. Yeah. I mean, obviously, Help. I mean, <laughs> right. I think there are some, some cool things, right. It's like, I understand the whole idea with growing pains, right. Cause it's like, it's, it's, it is cool to see more money and sponsorship come into the sport and to see the sport grow. But I'm, I also have a history. I mean, I, I raced, um, you know, the Skyrunning series. And one of the things that I love the most about the Skyrunning series is that e the races each year changed. So mm -hmm. that I didn't have to do the same races each year. And it was, it's because being an endurance athlete, I mean, you guys tell me it can be mentally fatiguing because it takes a lot of hours to train. And so it's like, I've never been someone who likes to do the same races every year. And I'm, I'm someone also who wants to do UTMB again, because I do think it's a cool race. And also there's like the obligation with if, if sponsors are going to target it as a as an important race or, you know, finals, like it's kind of, um, I don't know. I think, but if maybe, our, but if sponsors decided if Killian tomorrow said, you know right. what normal's done with UTMB. And so suddenly the North face and Nike and ultra and Brooks and Adidas were able to say, you know what, like, we're not going to put the, we're not going to make this an icon level race yeah. for our athletes. We're not going to put the pressure to make this the big event every year. Like the elites would go somewhere else. They'll go to absolutely Rosa. They'll go to, I was going to say that exactly is I think it's actually happening at a really awesome time for if people are contract negotiating next year, it gives them really interesting talking points with their sponsors to have like pretty raw conversations of like, Hey, I know you want me to race these races, but are you actually standing behind them? Because that's kind of what that means. And so I think athletes can change the narrative. And if you can get, you know, sponsors on board with not requiring you to run these races, I mean, then we're all going to go somewhere and some race is going to become extremely competitive and it will be getting, you know, all of our local media behind it and it will get media behind it. So I think it's an interesting time because it's like, we, we have the chance to not go to as oh. many, but yeah. yeah. And I think people do like, you have power. I saw a post by Ellie Greenwood. It's like, it's a vote of the, it's like the power of the community that they can like register for the races and they can like vote with their quote unquote money, but also people can kind of vote with where they want to do that with it, whether it be like media people, professional sponsored athletes, you know, whomever, but um, yeah, I think it kind of can put you in a position to to, to make choices and like, you know, steer the ship. <laughs> yeah. Like, and I'm not, I'm not going to cancel anyone who's doing a UTMB event. Like I, I understand why, why people are doing these races. I had a friend text me who will probably listen to this and she texted me and said, Hey, like, 
I'm signing up from Terrawera. I'm already signed up for Canyons. Like, am I a bad person? And I was like, no, 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 no. Like, you're not a bad person. Like, mm. but like, it's okay for us to not be okay with what UTMB is doing right now. Right. It's like, I'm not going to say that I'm never going to race UTMB ever again, but I am unhappy with, with what this major corporation is doing right now. And that might mean, you know, there was an era of, of Ironman triathlon where the big three guys all boycotted Kona that year because it was oh and because it, it was over um they weren't being paid prize money for the win there and so mm-hmm. you know dave scott and like the, the the other the other big athletes said you know what we're not going to kona this year like you guys don't value us you don't treat us well and that's kind kind of currently what we're seeing at utmb too like to get a media credential it's 10k flat rate like every single brand is paying to be there to just put a camera on course type of thing to take photos, to take, to take stills, not to take video even. Like the amount of money that's going into these races is insane. And that money's not coming back to the yeah. athletes at all too. So it's like yeah. brands and athletes do have some power in this. Um, I don't know how and when. Uh, Matt Walsh, who runs the Trail Mix newsletter, if any of you have read it, it's really great. I would subscribe to it. He's He's a phenomenal writer. But he was saying that, you know, in monopolies aren't allowed to happen in many other sports because there is a governing body that shuts down like monopolies. But we don't have a governing body like ITRA is not big enough. World Mountain Running Association is not big enough. There's no one big enough to throw their weight around. We had a PTRA meeting about this this morning and it's like, what can we do? Can we do anything like can the athletes do anything? Um, And we're gonna have more meetings about it. But it's yeah, it's we're at this crossroads and I don't know what calendars are going to look like in 2024 like I have two Hmm. distinct calendars set up right now I've got a calendar that's very non-UTMB and I've got a calendar that like will set me up to be there to race in at the end of August and it's like I don't have to make the decision quite yet and I'm happy I'm happy about that but it's like yeah it's it could be very very interesting like what happens over the next like two or three months I know I'm thinking about how to utilize my Thailand trip to make a point. Yeah. Yeah. It's hard. Right. Cause it's like some of these events are partners. Some of these re- events are outright owned by these agencies. Um, a lot of money is paid by these events to UTMB as well. I know that the, the fee for Transvolcania back to UTMB Iberia was 400,000 Euro. So they actually like broke their contract with UTMB and they're like, you know what? financially and like socially and for the spirit of our of our event we are no longer going to be a utmb affiliated race and they and they don't need it right they don't need western states doesn't need utmb transvolcania doesn't need utmb etc and it's kind of disappointing because i was like cool if i'm not going to do utmb is there another big european race that i'd like want to do and i was thinking of i was like oh like lavaredo or Iger or and i was like utmb event utmb event utmb event and it's just like they do like they own or partner with or have a a share of almost every big European race right now, Mm -hmm. which is kind of like, it's super interesting. Yeah. And these are some of like, I don't know. I like have done Lavarita so many times. Like there's just some really, really cool races, right. That are, that are part of, I think the reason, at least for me in particular, why the, the Gary Robbins situation and, and Whistler is, is, because of how it kind of went about it, it was his established course. And it seems like UTMB is just about taking over this, this oh, race yeah. that, you know, yeah. he designed, but now, you know, like Vail Resorts didn't want to renew for some seems like fishy reasons, but, um, 
Yeah. So that's why this one feels a bit weird. But like I said, I mean, I don't think, like you said, Corinne, I don't think anyone's a bad person for wanting to do these races. They're really cool ones, but it's like, I think in the future, like what, where do we want the sport going? Yeah. And I, and I think some of that movement's going to happen in the near term. I don't think, I don't think this is a conversation that's going to blow over and people are going to forget about it in three months time or four months time. Like I'm trying to make decisions that I'm going to like feel good about at the end of the day type of thing. And they're like, that's to me, like still like the big ick and the big yikes with, you know, this is the same organization that sued UTMF over use of the term ultra trail. This is the same. Are they going to come for UTCT? Oh, Stu told them to bleep off. (laughs) Trust me. Like they, they can't touch UTCT. Um, But yeah, it's, it's, you know, there's a, there's a lot of that going on. It's like uh, you, many of you reached out to us when UTMB announced their events in Australia about concerns about what was picked, what wasn't, what wasn't picked, how partnerships did or didn't work over there, um, mm-hmm. an event being established in direct conflict with another big race, et cetera. So um, we didn't listen when you told us that. And I think we gave UTMB the benefit of the doubt. And now I think there's a lot of people being like, I, I told you so. I think Caleb Efta is sitting there saying, hey, you guys, I... I told you so. Like when I said that you couldn't use a UTMB race to qualify for high lonesome, this is why. Cause I didn't like, I don't, you know, he, he didn't feel good about the ethos that they're bringing to the table. And I don't blame Caleb Efta at all at this point. I'm like, okay, cool. High lonesome may be on the list for 2024. Mm-hmm. Um, it's yeah, it's something that we're each going to have to grapple with a little bit, but I think that there's going to be some moves made in the next couple months that will, that could potentially like shake up 2024 for a lot of people. But yeah, let us know how you feel about it, I guess. I think we've heard, I've heard actually a bit from both sides in my DMs. I've had a lot of really good conversations with people, both local and otherwise, and people always just trying to figure out what it means together. So I guess, you know, I'd be really curious to hear from many of you if this is something that you saw coming, if it's something that surprised you, uh, if you have any personal ideas on solutions, but that is kind of what we're continuing to wiggle our way through day by day and week by week. Um, and before we get too carried away, we're going to dig back into results from this past week because some really cool shit happened, including what we mentioned at the top of the podcast with Keely being at Havelina. There were four golden tickets on the line there and four golden tickets claimed over there and just some outrageously cool performances. John Ray, third golden Woo-hoo! ticket, Boulder Boy. <laughs> going back actually California boy turned Boulder boy um going back to Western States for the third time Blake Slattergren a Seattleite um who dropped his pacer with like six miles to go he was absolutely flying yeah Yeah, part of the Calgill group um Mm -hmm. absolutely like slayed it and came in just about a minute in front of Ryan Montgomery who was in third um who also ran a great race they were all under 13 hours Heather Jackson wire to wire yeah um, pulled it off. Devin Yanko paced her for 40 miles. Ragna h- hanging on there for a second. The ageless wonder. She'll be 44 years old at Western States this year. Um, she's got the master's course record there currently. And I think 1741, um, brought that she ran in 2021. Um, so it'd be cool to see her back there. And then Riley Brady finishing a probably a disappointing third, but also like they fought through a really hard day and to come away with third, despite things not going to plan, I think still has to feel pretty good. Um, 
And Keely, I know that you were like physically in the mix, so to speak, as you were on pacing duties. What did you actually experience out there? Yeah, I mean, well, first of all, the first couple laps, I got to watch people on the live stream and come through my aid station. And I will say that like, you know, most of the top women, like when it was a group of eight to 12, did not really cool themselves off for quite Uh a And if you look at the rest of the results, this field is vastly spread out after top oh and shattered and shattered a five hour spread from first to tenth yeah and i i think the race just kind of surprised people uh it got hot and i don't know if people were expecting it to get hot so early like i think in the desert it just can get hot really fast the sun the Um, sun is warm again not everyone messed that up but i just was watching and i was like guys come on start cooling come on just take your time Um, But it was fun because I was pacing Jeff Stern, who ended up getting top 10 men, and the top three women were in the top 10 men. Um, And we were out there on lap four, and Ragna had gotten passed by Riley, and I was like, Riley looks way better than Ragna when I saw them, you know, at the aid stations. But then me and Jeff were out there after the first climb, and Ragna just comes storming past <laughs> so fast, didn't even look up. I was like, oh, nice, Ragna. It's like, you must go catch them. And, you know, because I, I like a good race. And she was on a terror. Like, she dropped us in, like, three seconds. Like, it was crazy. And I was like, okay, I would not want her chasing me, like, even if I felt amazing, you know, because it was just she was flying and was clearly on a mission. Um, and unfortunately, Riley, you know, was not feeling their best and puked a lot, like puked a lot, a lot. Uh So yeah, that's a bummer, but you know, I think Riley obviously is showing that they can hang with the best of us. And so hopefully they decide to go do another race to get into Western States. Um, yeah, I think it was easy to forget. I think Riley's 2023 was overshadowed by just kind of a disappointing day at Western States. And then, um, I think dealing with a little bit of a niggle this summer, um, but there was a while too where I was like, oh man, Riley's ahead of Ragna. Like this is like Riley also like stamping, like stamping their name on the book and being like, hey, like I'm legit, which I think we all know. We know Riley's legit, but I think that that was their moment to do that too. And so I kind of bummed that it didn't quite yeah. work out, but um curious to know if Riley will end up at Black Canyon or Canyon's 100K this spring. Um, and I don't you know, know if you guys were watching the men's race like really diligently in the beginning, but like there was a lot of carnage in that as well. Matt Daniels, Preston like, Cates, yeah, Brett you see like Matt and everyone sprint through into the second loop. And then John just comes in. Like, I didn't even know he was racing. He was just like out for a jog. There was no stress on his face. He was like moving really fast, but like, doesn't, doesn't look like he's exerting himself. And I was like, Oh, he's for sure going to win. <laughs> <laughs> Cause he was flying, but like, didn't look like he was working at all. And like, clearly then passed Matt Daniels. And then from there on led wire to wire after mile 40, but it was really cool to see him come through and just be oh, like flew. such a dominant force and look so calm. John's yeah. split from Jackass Junction to the finish, I think was under an hour. Wow. On his final lap. Like his, so, he, yeah. he negative split his final lap. Yeah, which it was cooler, but nobody else really did that, I'm sure. No, Blake Blake actually, Blake ran really well. Blake closed like six or seven minutes down to Ryan and then like shadowed Ryan by about a minute through the last couple of aid stations and then hammered to bring it home and to sneak just ahead. Mm-hmm. I'm assuming Blake knew that Ryan was already in Western States from his seventh place finish there last year. Um, but Blake, like, you know, young guy, 
hasn't really raced outside of the region, you know, as a Chuckanut, Wyeast, uh, Gorge kind of kind of guy. And this was his first hundred mile race. Like what a talk about a debut 100. He ran 1258, just five seconds off of Dakota Jones's time from last year. And many of us thought Dakota's performance last year was like one of the best hundred mile performances. And then John destroys it. And Blake in a debut hundred runs five seconds slower. Like that's, that is stupid. It's so cool. Yeah. Yeah. I know both, all three of them being sub 13 is just so impressive. Like we were were laughing because Zach Bitter, who also had a great race, got fifth, but ran like, you know, 1326 or something. And we're like, you know, every single year of Havelina, except for like three years, he would have (laughs) won. Yeah, totally. Like, totally. This was such a fast day for those top like five men. It was crazy. Yeah. And, and Heather, Heather ran the second fastest time ever. Devin pacing her to, I think, finish about 12 minutes better than Devin's winning time mm-hmm. from last year. So the only time faster is still Camille Heron's amazing course record, which is like just over 14 hours because Heather ran what, 14, 20 something? I think. Yeah. Yeah. 45 or 14 around there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Cause she finished about 30 minutes up on Ragna. So that would track. But yeah. So, just absolutely like also insanely, insanely fast. Got that second hundred mile finish and didn't have quite the uh the blow up on lap five like she did last year. So that has to feel pretty good. Hopefully it doesn't take her three weeks to regain her ability to walk like it's not <laughs> like it did last year. So huge bravo to Heather and to Devin for pacing her in through those last two loops. And we have to give a big shout out too to the course record mm-hmm. that threw down in the Havilene hundred K. Um Raj Paul Panu won the men's race in 1715 besting scott Trayer's course record and then um anna cassius won the women's race in 1813 she's um, an amazing 100k road runner um ran black canyon last year kind of was in that bunch with eden nilson and shay aquilano um and yeah ran 813 breaking lottie brink's record from the year before which is also super cool finishing second overall and then to point this out to my friend texted me and said wow the women's 100k was way better than the men's 100k and i was like wait what and she was like yeah there were 17 women in the men's top 10 and i was like wait how does that math work so basically if you look at the top <laughs> 20s if you look at the top 20 spots overall it was like women made up like 13 or 14 of them oh, wow. um so the women like really <laughs> threw down in the canyons 100k or in the javelina 100k and i can't wait to see i think anna is running black canyon Um, and that would be really, really cool. As David Lamb said at the finish of Havilene hundred K. Yeah. It looked like, it looked like Anna could run another 38 miles pretty easily. Very cool. (laughs) So I agreed for Raj too. And he was like, it was such a cool thing to crew for him because he comes from more of a road background, but he was like really diligent with all of his fueling and stopping and being calm and cooling off. And like, it obviously like paid off. Yeah. Um, Screaming fast hundred K. Yeah, so fast. I was used to chasing Jeff to like get some beta and then run back to the crew. And I like first lap Raj comes in, I like start to jog after him. I'm like, oh, I have to run. Like <laughs> <laughs> no jogging going down whatsoever. Okay. And I think the last race that I wanted to touch on was Big's backyard happened. Um this past week. This will come out next week. Um, but it was insane for those of you who are unfamiliar with Biggs backyard it is a race put on by Lazarus Lake in his backyard Biggs is his pit bull um so it's Biggs backyard and it's a four-ish mile loop it's just over four hours and the runners have to start the loop every hour on the hour and the last person standing 
wins the race. Essentially, one person has to finish the loop solo and they win the race. Oftentimes, this means that two two people start the last loop and one of them turns around and comes back to the finish line as opposed to like someone like having to head out completely on their own for the last loop. Um, lots of mind games being played there, but so many runners, I think 70 runners made it to like lap or like yard 60 or yard 70. Like it went deep and far. They had 10... 10 men, I think, made it past 88 or something. And then there were three of them duking it out into the hundreds. 102 yards, 425 miles was the previous record set earlier this year um, by uh, Phil Phil Gore. Um, Phil Gore was like fourth or fifth man standing before finally calling it a day. But Harvey Lewis went toe-to-toe with a super young, actually, Ukrainian guy who lives in Canada, right down the street, actually from Linda and Gary Robbins, um, Ihor Vares, whose name I'm probably saying wrong. I've seen his name on other start lists, though. Um, The dude is a talent. So he took the assist. So the person who's second to last standing gets the assist, running 107 yards. Harvey took the win with 108 yards or 450 miles. He ran for four days and 12 hours. It's awful. (laughs) He was was running. Running. And there were times too where they would like start and like Harvey or Igor would like like sprint off the line. I think it's mind games. It's being like, no, like you think I'm tired? I'm not slowing down anytime soon. Um, And then there would be laps where like Harvey would come in like a minute or two behind um, Bart, like a Polish guy or um, Ihor or Phil, like he'd like come in like a minute or two back from them type of thing. And just like was mentally so disgustingly tough. Um, And then to add to her absolutely insane year, Claire Banworth of France, who won the Tahoe 200, set an FKT in the Colorado Trail, ran Hard Rock, ran UTMB, did something else. And just came here. Oh, just ran, just won the Kodiak 100 mile by UTMB. And okay. now um, she was the last woman standing at 250 miles or 60 yards. Um, there's a a younger Canadian runner as well in the mix. I think her name was Amanda Nelson. I did not write this down. Um, and ran like 235 miles or 240 miles or something of that nature. Like ran, ran very, very far as well. So Super cool to see. Um, I think that was the farthest a a Canadian woman had run um, for Amanda Nelson, if that name is correct, Um, the Canadian gal. So very cool, very crazy. Oh, Claire takes an off season. If you're listening. Yeah, Claire, I don't know that you listen to us, but off season, that's that's (laughs) the the new word for you. Um, Before we dive into the meat and potatoes, we have to give a shout out to the folks over at The Feed um people were in my dm saying pumpkin spice waffles are you serious <laughs> um lots of excitement there on the seasonal flavor selection we love our friends over at the feed and the snack boxes that we're getting week after week i know keely's on a coffee kick per <laughs> usual anything new though for you for either one of you recently that you found extra tasty I'm just heating up my um, recovery drinks now. So I love it. Warm recovery. Yeah. Mm, I got some picky oats. So like, you know, curated oatmeal, just to spice up my life a little bit in the morning. Yeah. Uh, it's almost time for the scratch hot apple cider. Yeah. Drink next. Oh. 
Um, but my next shipment, I think I'm going to be getting just a bunch of snacks for Thailand because mm. you know, I have no clue what I'll eat out there, but lots of fun stuff. <laughs> awesome. So if you also want to try out a snack box from the feed, you know, it's your one-stop shop from all for all your sports, nutrition, needs, recovery products, et cetera. Um, I get my iron supplement from them, Thorn, the Thorn iron supplement, super love it which is not a coherent way of saying that saying that sentence, but you too can try it out by going to www.thefeed.com slash trail society. There you can acquire a $15 credit per quarter. So $60 to spend over the course of the year to get, I don't know. I mean, if you want to buy iron supplements with it, you can, but <laughs> you could also buy something fun and exciting and new to add to your pantry. Meat and potatoes. Um, I wrote the outline so Keely couldn't put in brotatoes or anything fun. Mm -hmm. uh, but essentially, we're going to talk about um, menstruation and recovery and then a little bonus study out of UC Santa Barbara. Um, and just to kind of kick this conversation off, we just want to mention, too, that like we're going to discuss menstruation. We realize that not everyone menstruates, not all women menstruate, and there are folks who don't identify as women who can and do menstruate as well. But this discussion is for everyone. Um, I think we can all learn a lot from it. And it's just meant to discuss the latest research in this space, even when that research is at times more limited than we would like. Um, so we're going to dig in today to a little bit of a combo. We're going to talk about some of the stuff that Keely's been focused on reading and digesting for us over at Free Trail. And also we're going to theme it around a recent article uh, that was an outside written by the brilliant Alex Hutchinson titled How Your Menstrual Cycle Affects Recovery from training. And while that's a catchy title, I'm kind of curious to hear about what that article is actually getting at. What is the meat and potatoes of this thing? And and can we learn from it, right? Like how, like, how is that brought about? And so I, Hillary, kind of to kick things off, I'm wondering um, what the study was that Alex based this article on. Yeah, so he wrote an article um, a few months ago, kind of about how some of that there basically needs to be a lot more data to to actually conclude if we can actually plan our training schedule around our period. Is basically that was the main conclusions that we don't really know. A lot of the 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 studies were based on self reporting of like your menstrual cycle, like so the luteal phase, which is right before you start bleeding, like that that can vary for a lot of people. And so we didn't actually know, how can you know if it affects your training if you don't really know when it starts and ends? There's some data that points like there's decreased recovery or longer recovery uh, during this luteal phase, um, but more data needed to be done. And so basically that's exactly what happened. And so there's a new data from the Female Endurance Athlete Project. It's a Norwegian initiative to fill in some of the gaps in knowledge about the female specific aspects of exercise and athletic performance. Um, and so this is a team led by Virginia de Martin Tapreren <laughs> um, of the Norwegian uh, University of Science and Technology. And so he kind of goes into, um, it was actually quite a rigorous study they, they were doing, uh, we'll kind of go into it here about um, how they actually measured the data to kind of um, know exactly where the women were in, in their cycle and um, have more appropriate measurements for how we could determine uh, variation in, in recovery or if, if there was any, any differences at all. Yeah. There have been studies that have come out the past year too, that have just been about like, this is a study, this is a review paper to tell you how to do studies utilizing <laughs> women or utilizing people who menstruate because um, historically there have not been like gold standards established um, to do that. And so we've got kind of a lot of, um, we could call it noisy data or we could call it garbage mm. data, whatever 
your preferences. Keely's like, it's garbage. It's all garbage. <laughs> um, and we're going to give Keely plenty of uh, platform to, to talk about some of those kind of what was missed, um, like why studies need to be set up a certain way, et cetera. But before we do that, I guess I just like to kind of set the, set the parameters of the study, like what, you know, historically, we don't do a good job of looking at this data. Historically, we don't do a good job of sourcing research subjects, of um, utilizing technology to accurately look at this stuff. And I'm wondering how the Female Endurance Project set up their study. So Hillary, if you can kind of dive into how they set it up and then um, don't worry, Keely, we'll let you uh, take your critical eye at this as well. Exactly. Yeah. So uh, in total, there are 41 uh, female endurance athletes um, that they basically are objectively monitoring uh, their men menstrual cycle. So they had two categories, well, some different categories of trained. This was um, the female endurance athlete that was averaging about seven and a half hours of training per week. Um, and there's yeah, so then there's then the elite and the internet um the international averaging about eleven and a half hours, right? So there's there's some variation over that, but the parameters at which they're measuring um so they're gathering data points is uh they, first of all, they all had regular menstrual cycles and they weren't using hormonal contraceptives. Um, and because that can influence things. Um they tracked their periods using a digital ovulation urine test. Um and we'll let Keely kind of chime in on this, but then they took uh, daily measurements of resting heart rate, perceived sleep quality, um, physical readiness to train and mental readiness to train. Um, and the latter three were on a scale of one to 10, right? So there's a little bit of, um, you know, subjective things in there. Um, but for the most yeah, part- Which which is unusual in these studies, right? right? And, and one of the things is that as long as the test subject is using the same- right metrics day in and day out it's generally okay it, it makes it more confusing a little bit for like uh between subject variability but it allows you to generally look at intersubject variability because you're using a consistent tool of mm -hmm. measurement even if that's you know them taking their resting heart rate versus using a wearable mm -hmm. um etc so they took daily measurements of all that stuff including a scale of one to ten on some of those kind of perceived readiness mm -hmm. traits um, one thing to note though, I guess, Keely, this is where I'd like you to kind of bat your critical eye at this. And we looked over the full study earlier today. We were kind of shooting things back and forth, but this idea of like, you know, there, is there a gold standard for this stuff? You know, did, what did they like in, in, as you looked at their study design and setup, what were you like, Ooh, this seems like a miss or, Ooh, I would have done this differently. Like how, like, how did you evaluate that when you looked through the study earlier today? Yeah, I, I think it's a good question, Corinne, because I don't think there's necessarily a gold standard yet. Mm -hmm. um, but I, I think, you know, and the authors also admitted this, but I, I think LH testing is a good step in the right direction because mm -hmm. at least we're finding that differentiation of the cycle. That's, um, that's luteinizing hormone. Sorry, luteinizing sorry. hormone. Yep, yep, during ovulation, that's when it peaks. So you can kind of determine that ovulatory window, which will divide your cycle in half. However, they admit this, and also this is kind of my first red flag, is that, you know, the gold standard would really be better understanding the actual circulating levels of the hormones in mm -hmm. the bodies of these female endurance athletes during those times. Um, because, you know, they did solve for some things like um, luteal phase defect and that kind of thing by only like allowing inclusion of athletes with certain lengths of menstrual cycle phases. Yeah, but they did. They did eliminate people, right? That's a big thing to point awesome. out. Like I'd say 
I think this star gets a gold star. This the study gets a gold star because of this is one of the first that have done this much. But again, it's still like kind of missing the mark if you want to actually say if there's an effect. And so what they should probably do and what hopefully studies will do in the future if they get more funding again it's expensive is Very to expensive. monitor circulating levels of hormones, looking at the ratio of progesterone to estrogen, which are the two major circulating sex steroid hormones during the follicular and luteal phase to see where they are at their highest and their lowest, right? Because from some of the studies I've done in my past role as a scientist at Nike, people could have an ovulation date at a certain window and their peak estrogen progesterone levels could be four days after that. They could be 10 days after that. They could be three days after that one cycle. And then the next cycle, it might be seven days. And so I think like in a really like ideal world, we're tracking these women for more than one cycle to get to know their individual hormonal variation levels. And then we're actually looking at over time, how these different, you know, subjective and objective measures change with menstrual cycle phase. Yeah. Which makes, which is why probably, which is why I would say like historically studies that look at menstrual cycle stuff when it comes to like, Oh, can we use menstrual cycle to, to, to like to decide training? There's so much inter there's so much subject to subject variability, but there's so much intersubject variability, which I don't think is well understood. Like that's what you were getting at with your work at Nike was that when you guys were doing this in this expensive, and I would also say um, invasive study, right? Like a lot of these studies are designed to be minimally invasive and that's what they did here. It's minimally invasive, which is great because then you get adherence, you get people that are willing to volunteer, willing to do it, et cetera. And so without the funding and the mm-hmm. like invasiveness kind of component in there, you know, that that's where those like, maybe those like little misses mm-hmm. come in, because I think it's so interesting that, you know, we can track our own cycles and look at those, like, what do, what do I feel? And when do I feel it? And it might be, yeah, because you ovulate here, but your mm-hmm. peak for hormones is here, which is different than, you know, Hillary, which is different than myself, et cetera. And so I think it's, I think that is like a super complicating fact whenever we talk about how are circulating hormones affecting metrics, but still really cool. Like they did um, a step forward in a big way. Yeah. I, th- I was surprised too, that they didn't gather body temp data just because that mm. is pretty easy to gather. And I think would be just another good data point to have alongside with it, because I do think body temp shows a little bit of that peak hormonal <laughs> level and then kind of drops off before your cycle starts. And so I think it could show a little bit more granular of a picture alongside that ovulation date too. Um, so yeah, at least they have an initiative completely geared oh, towards that, right? Yeah. Which is exciting. And I feel like, you know, way better than what I saw at ACSM this year in the menstrual cycle symposium, where like nine out of 10 studies did the calendar based method. So, Oof. like, I'm glad that there are studies coming out where they're actually doing, you know, a little bit more like in depth of the yeah, study. Yeah, they're not just counting the days and they're like, you ovulate on day 14. And you're like, do I? That doesn't seem right. Um, friends of mine who are dealing with like endometriosis who are like, I bleed 28 days a month. I don't bleed three days a month. Mom, when does my cycle end? No one knows. Um, okay, we digress. Diving back into the study a little bit and we'll kind of continue to bat these ideas around a little bit more and then take away some tangible things too. Um, Hillary, I want to talk a little bit about like the data that was collected. So we say they took like, they, you know, they were measuring um, ovulation, they were measure or like, you know, kind of like estimated ovulation, they were measuring these like subjective measures um, and um, an objective measure with heart rate, resting heart rate in the morning, which is a pretty good indicator. Um, resting heart rate and heart rate variability are two really good indicators of how the nervous system is responding. So what um, in this study, 
Like, what did they find over the course of it from that data they were collecting day in and day out? Right. So they basically found a statistically significant difference. Um, this is what they reported uh, between the early follicular um, and they they measured a basically 49.6 beats per minute and a, the mid luteal phase. So they basically there's a difference of 1.7 beats per minute or they equated this to a 3.4 percent um, difference. And they they said that this is um, statistically significant because the typical day to day vari variation in submaximal heart rate is about 6.5 percent. Um, but this seems like I mean, it's very it's like a that seems like a very small number to me. Um, and Corinne, you added in a little anecdote there that I think you should. Um, yeah, I was going to say like my yeah. heart rate changes more than 1.7 beats per yeah. minute between that's phases they, for sure. And that's um, what they get yeah. as being like, this is statistically significant, but it's not relevant because, right. you know, there's normally a 6.5% variation for some people between day-to-day -day resting heart rate values. And so mm -hmm. we're looking at a change of just, 3.4% across menstrual cycle phase, like that is accounted for by that day-to-day -day variation. Yeah, it's it's accounted for. And I guess in my mind, we call this, um, like there's probably a confounding variable that's being missed here, right? Like it's like, okay, if we are also using temperature and we're using heart rate variability, for example, we're talking about the aura ring later, but essentially, right, if we had like those two metrics in a wearable, maybe that confounding variable would be accounted for all of a mm -hmm. sudden, right? Like maybe that's stress. Maybe that's, and by stress, I mean, that could be like physical, like that could be yeah, like just like stress, stress, like I'm sitting here freaking out, or it could be like, mm -hmm. I did my long run yesterday, right? So it's like, there's, there's probably a confounding variable a little bit here right. that I wonder if that could be parsed out if we had more robust data collection yeah. right or, or we study those responders right because like mm -hmm. i would love to see a study that does this and like yeah sure maybe they publish the first findings they show this very boring graph where they highlight the mean right <laughs> it's like oh there's not really much difference across phase but then they go in and they actually look at the individual responders who actually do have very big changes in resting heart rate during the different menstrual phases and they deep dive into them to see if yeah, there's are, like, are the do those people have something going people. on exactly yeah. right I think is that LEA or yeah. is that yeah. the LEA or is that like, actually we, we measured them, you know, their cycle exactly correctly, or we measured theirs like completely wrong. Like we don't know, right? Totally. Like maybe in those women, all of their estrogen progesterone ratios were very similar, right? Mm -hmm. Like, like we don't know. And so I think it'd be really cool for someone to do kind of an analysis on those people. And I think you'd really uncover post-hoc. Yeah. Yeah. So maybe yeah. I'll, I'll reach out and be like, Hey, can I do some analysis for you? <laughs> can I, can I dig into this deeper? Can I because join? You're driving me crazy. <laughs> yeah. Which is like indicative in many menstrual cycle studies, right? Where it's like, it's like many of us can say, no, I feel this. And it's like science gaslights us a little bit to be like, no, it's negligible. Look at this graph we made for you. <laughs> the mean says this it's negligible. Yeah. And you're like, no, but have you seen how I feel? Have you seen what I feel training cycle to cycle? Have you seen what I, you know, like how I feel yeah. 72 hours before my period versus the day after, et cetera. Like, it's like, yeah. we have some common experience. We also have very different experiences. And I feel like that is oftentimes hard to parse out in data, both intersubject variability month to month, and then between subject variability within a single month or, or a three month block, et cetera. So Hillary, I'd love to talk a little bit about kind of, you know, I, I joke a lot. I joke a lot. One that sport is behind science. And my former graduate advisor told like, like didn't laugh me at the room, but was like very offended when I was like, no, no, no. Oftentimes we see things happen in sport. And then we do research to like 
understand why it works or why it doesn't work. Like that's why I think that sport is ahead of science oftentimes. But I also think that in physiology research in particular, the conclusion is oftentimes like, well, duh. Like it's like obviously this is the answer. So I'm wondering what the researchers concluded in this study and if it is kind of like a well duh or is it like an expected or unexpected finding? Yeah. So I mean, I know we just discussed all that stuff, but basically that that whole diff the difference is real. Like there is a slight difference between um basically and does agree with the previous stunts findings that um you could see a delayed or a slower recovery um in, in that in that luteal phase, in the mid-luteal phase. So Yes. Um, however, it's also, there's a, a, and I quote, so basically the research point out, um, it, it should be regarded as one of the many possible stressors. So your recovery might be a bit slower during the, the luteal phase of your cycle. Um, but the best way to handle it is basically pay attention to your training load, uh, other life stressors and how you're feeling. I mean, it's like we, Again, like Corinne said, it's, you know, we can be almost like scienced out of like, oh, but you're not really feeling this. The data points to something different, but actually that's a really important, an important indicator because athletes generally are pretty in tune with their, um, with how they're feeling. Um, yeah. And basically another, another point that we didn't really talk about this, um, the self-reported, um, like phys mental and physical readiness to train and the self-reported sleep quality were also trending lower in the mid mid phase and the ovulatory phase, um, then in the follicular phase. So, gotcha. yeah. So if you basically, if you feel tired, it's no, you're probably tired. Yeah. <laughs> feel like you want to eat chocolate. You should probably eat chocolate. Um, <laughs> you need more carbs. That's what, that's you, what it's yeah. for. <laughs> As I mentioned last time, it's real. Just give in, just do it. Just eat, eat the cookie, the whole thing. Um, Keely, you know, we talked a little bit about limitations. Is there anything else in this study that you would have liked to kind of see, broadened out on or you know your dreamboat scenario anything else that you want to add to this uh i think a couple things but for brevity i'll only talk to a couple um but uh <laughs> so the one thing that i think is interesting and one thing i'm working on with the faster team at stanford right now is training load and how to best calculate that and i think they did do a good acute to chronic ratio calculation however they just took into account rpe and I think that RPE has a tendency to be skewed when being like as the sole measure of intensity for workouts. And I think especially like, you know, if you're doing a speed workout, like the whole workout's not a speed workout. So I think RPE can be kind of skewy. And so I don't think that's necessarily like the best way to calculate training. Yeah, it's, it's like 20% of this run was a 10 and 80% yeah. of this run was a five. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So I think having heart rate when you have people out in the field is probably the best way to control for that. Um, and since they were already like having a lot of touch points, you know, getting their VO2 max, their lactate threshold values so that they actually could quantify those different heart rate zones of their runs would just be better. Right. Like, but again, it's a limitation. The study was still very robust. It's just something that in our ideal world, would we have added that as well? I think that would be nice. And then I think the only other thing that, um, I thought was something they could have accounted for maybe in a better way was just other life stressors, um, like fueling habits and the, all of that. So it's like figuring out like, okay, was this change in heart rate because they like, they didn't fuel at all yesterday after their run, or was it because they have a really big life work stress? Like, you know, there's a lot of other things that are at play. And so I think somehow getting a quantification of those life stressors and also kind of figuring out like fueling and carbohydrate availability in these athletes would be helpful um especially looking at menstrual cycle because yeah, you know it's more confounded variables 
Yeah, exactly. But again, this science is very messy. So uh, it's not on them. It's not on them. It's on it's on the messiness. Okay, so things that I want to kind of bridge out to you from here is kind of like the tangibles. And this is kind of bridging in a little bit to um, some of the stuff we talked about last week, Keely, but it's kind of like, you know, what are the two areas, you know, from this related to this, right? Like menstrual cycle phase and recovery or how we feel around it. Um, you kind of pointed out two kind of key zones and that would be like body temp and sleep and then carbohydrate and protein metabolism. And I'm wondering if we can start with like, kind of some key takeaways in relation to body temperature and sleep and how a normal menstrual cycle impacts body temperature and sleep. And then like, how might that affect recovery anecdotally anyway? Yeah, I I think this was just timely because it ties into the findings that the people in this study found, right? Like um, some of the basic physiology can explain why they had impaired sleep quality during these times. And so um, some studies based off this review have shown that sleep could be com- could be impaired during the menstrual cycle, most likely during the luteal phase. So during that high hormone, high body temperature phase and, you know, high body temperature being one of those reasons, right? Because having a high body temperature, we don't like to sleep when we're really hot. So that could be one of those variables that just makes sleep a little less likely to happen. Um, and then there's also been some studies in this that show because of the impaired the impaired recovery, which could be due to impaired carbohydrate, like ability to grab the carbohydrates into the muscles and make them repair. Um, that could also impair your sleep, right? Because sometimes when we're super overtrained or not recovering properly, it's also not as easy to fall asleep. And so again, these are all just kind of confounding variables that could be impacting sleep in this area that are due to the menstrual cycle. Yeah. And I guess kind of, can we expand a little bit too on that carbohydrate and protein metabolism specifically a little bit too, like how progesterone might impact muscle protein synthesis. And then also kind of that, like, again, playing around with like how sleep conditions and carbohydrate and protein synthesis can be impacted here. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So in, in, when you're thinking about your muscles and you're thinking about rebuilding them, they need carbohydrate and protein to rebuild after exercise, right? Cause during exercise, you're kind of breaking them down. You're depleting them of all their glycogen. So when we think of how recovery could be, you know, influenced by menstrual cycle phase, we look to the really high circulating hormones. And we know that during the luteal phase, progesterone is really high. And we also know that progesterone does have impacts on the ability for the muscle to synthesize protein. And it has it in a more catabolic state, which means it's more likely to break down protein. And so if we think back to the first point I made about recovering protein or recovering muscles, we need protein to be synthesized, right? And so during that phase, protein might be broken down more and make muscle recovery a little less efficient. And so that could be impairing your recovery and making you feel like you don't want to train quite as much. Um, And then again, similar with glycogen utilization during that luteal phase, glycogen is not going to be utilized as efficiently by the muscles. It's going to be drawn more into the follicular or sorry, into the uh, uterine lining. And so glycogen utilization might be impaired as well, which again will just impact the muscle's ability to recover. And so they could just be impacting your overall ability to want to get out the door, feel like you're recovering from all your workouts. And so you just want to consider that. And again, that can just be another one of those variables that you think of when you're training and pushing your body during those different phases. Um, And I think like the whole, like what I take from all of these studies, because I think you know, the verdict's still out about how concrete all of these statements are, is that 
it's very individualized. And I think we all should do ourselves. Which is not the fun answer. That's not no, the fun, not. sexy the answer. Non-sexy like, answer. It's not going to give me any answer. funding. <laughs> NIH, don't just. <laughs> yeah, totally. These kind of answers get you no funding, but I think it's like they're highly individualized and we all have different impacts from our menstrual cycle. And if we're not menstruating, we'll have different impacts during different times of our training cycle as well. And so I think the best thing we can do is just take a daily diary of like, you know, what did we train that day? How did we fuel that day? How did we feel that day? How did we sleep that day? If we are menstruating, you know, did we have our bleed that day? If we are able enough to have something like an aura ring, we can track all of that with our body temperature. Um, if you're a little more cheap, you can buy ovulation kits and at least get that one data point a month of when you are ovulating. Like I think keeping track of your cycle is not only going to help you, you know, become potentially a better performing athlete because you're going to have a better understanding of how you adapt during different phases, but it's going to give you feel, make you feel really empowered because you're going to have all this data. Right. And I think it will be very helpful for you, regardless of how you use it in the future that like, you know, if you're one of those people who want to become a mother someday, like you'll have all this data, just look back on with your physician when you're planning out your fertility plan. Right. Or when you're hitting menopause, you're going to be way more in tune with how those hormones are changing. Cause you have all of this historical data on yourself, you'll be able to tell when something's awry and all of a sudden your menstrual cycles don't make any sense anymore. And maybe you have more hot flashes than you used to. Yeah. Um, or if you're like me, this will spare you from thinking that you've gone completely crazy and you're gaslighting yourself for like 72 <laughs> hours. And then you get your period and you're like, Oh, that's why I felt absolutely crazy. And it's like, if you're tracking that, you're like, Ooh, I feel really like I like cried for no reason today yeah. because like, I don't know. Steven didn't say bye to me, whatever it is. Like it's something super, super silly. He didn't yeah. leave the cereal out for me. Um, and then you're like, oh, like that's like, you're like, oh, I am crying because I will probably get my period in like two days, as opposed to being like living with that for 72 hours and just going absolutely bananas. Um, it's kind of nice to just know what's coming down the pipeline instead of being like, why do I feel like this? It's like, oh, this happens every month. I could probably predict this. Mm -hmm. oh, yeah. the crazies are real <laughs> doesn't get you funding either um okay last little thing there too before i like just like dive bomb us with like a little side study that i thought was super interesting um you had a little bullet point down about pre-sleep protein um and you're like excuse me calling all scientists um <clears throat> um cool opportunity here is there anything else that people should be thinking about when it comes to besides just like keeping track of things besides just journaling and like understanding what's making them feel good is there any other like not tips and tricks because that feels very biohacky and that's not what we're about here you want your bro science you're gonna have to go somewhere else um we won't name names but wondering kind of is there anything else that people could experiment with or try doing to maybe better their sleep when they're feeling like this etc yeah. And I don't know if you guys have played around with this, but there are some studies that have shown pre-sleep protein um, to improve sweet sleep quality during the luteal phase. And so, you know, again, there's not a ton of studies out there that show this, but I do think that typically a lot of female athletes are not hitting their protein needs. And so adding in a little extra serving of protein before sleep during your luteal phase might be just a cool experiment. And I don't feel like it's going to have any negative effects on you. And if it does, then then stop having it. If you wake up in the middle of the night and your stomach hurts or something, but I think it could be something that's fun. To Largely beneficial. Probably. I think so. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe just every night, not just during your luteal phase. Exactly. But, but maybe try it then. Just yeah. Stop. Just 
Yeah. You know, as I said, it's a very, if anything, it's a very cheap placebo and placebos are real. So no, no shame, no harm, no foul. Okay. Bonus study time. And uh, it's in preprint, which means it's like they, it hasn't been published yet, but they want to get it out because they're doing press releases essentially. And it's a study from UC Santa Barbara. And I've, I've known about their this really cool lab there for a while. It's in the dynamical neuroscience program and they've been using um, brain imaging to study. um, Largely they're doing like Alzheimer's research and that kind of thing, because Alzheimer's largely affects like affects more women than men. So there's like, there's plenty of NIH funding for this kind of stuff, but they were also looking at um, hormones and hormone fluctuation and how that impacts brain structures. And they found that we've known for a long time that fluctuating hormones has has an impact on the HPA access or the hypothalamic pituitary access. It's a lot of words in one small sentence. Um, But essentially this study, it's um, conducted by, the first author is a doctoral candidate named Elizabeth Reiser. um, And they studied 30 women who are not taking hormonal birth control and had regular monthly periods. And they took images of the women's brains during menstruation, ovulation, and mid-luteal phase. Keely, I cannot for the life of me tell you how they measured any of that. So probably I maybe minimally, ideally, not sure. I but mean, if you do an MRI, they should be full yeah. on hormone Just doing uh, hormone testing. Yeah. Um, I can't speak to that for certain, but we'll pretend that it's a gold star at least. Um, and they were looking at brain volume. Um, so gray matter, which is the main body of your brain cells, the white matter, which is what connects and enables communication between those cells. They also measured cortical thickness, which is like the thickness of your brain wrinkles. Mm-hmm. Hillary is a neuroscience person. And she's like, that seems medium accurate. And then they also <laughs> collected data related to how water diffuses across brains, white matter, um, which basically is like an indication of processing speeds. Um, and so they looked at changes in estradiol, progesterone, luteinizing hormone, and follicular stimulating hormone or follicle stimulating hormones, excuse me. So LH and um, FSH. And they found that estrogen and or estradiol in this sense and LH concentrations were correlated with efficiency of the diffusion of water across the white matter, which is essentially like just prior to ovulation. And it's when your brain processes things the fastest, which you <laughs> maybe experienced, which you're like, I'm, if you're me, you're out on a run and you're like cracking jokes and you're like, I am so witty and fast and I'm coming up with jokes and I'm like writing this article as I run. Like my brain is like on fire, like processing so much so well, which also makes sense that like postmenopausal dementia, estrogen being protective, estrogen not being present would impact some of this stuff. So I thought that was super interesting. And they could see it in the brain imaging. They also found that um, um, FSH concentrations were correlated with cortical thickness um, and that brain the brain's volume stayed the same, but increased um, with progesterone. Uh, yeah, increased the brain tissue volume, but decreased the cerebrospinal fluid, which they couldn't like completely explain. Um, it's probably like, open to interpretation a little bit, but um, kind of the key there was with S- with FSH um, kicking off your follicular phase and the gray matter thickness or the cortical thickness. Um, they saw it mainly in your temporal and occipital um, lobes, which impact your limbic and visual systems, impacting emotion, arousal, haha, and memory. Um, and essentially that makes sense, right? It's this period of like heightened fertility. Mm-hmm. So it's like your brain is like, hey, 
like let's get it on <laughs> and your body's like we have eggs we can make this happen so it all it kind of makes sense right it's just like it's kind of cool to have the science and like the brain MRIs that like correspond with the stuff that we've like felt and experienced and what they want to do with this stuff is they want to focus on um, changes affecting people's mental health throughout the menstrual cycle and risk for things like Alzheimer's disease. And part of the reason that I thought this was super interesting is that I am fascinated by postmenopausal women being diagnosed with schizophrenia because it's just like this really interesting phenomenon that has nothing to do with sports or athletics. Um, mm. But outside of like young men and predominantly young men, but young women as well, um, kind of in early adulthood, that's where you see schizophrenia diagnosed most typically. But women who are postmenopausal, when estrogen drops off, that's like the other most common group of people being diagnosed with schizophrenia. And it like doesn't present normally because you're like 50, 60 year old women don't just become schizophrenic. They can, and they do. And I think it'd be super interesting to use this research to look into that as well. So that's my two cents about brains being on fire and it corresponding to things like hormones. <laughs> that just reminds me of like some, actually like a, a neuroscience like retreat I went to in grad school. And this is a great, yeah, this is a great article for, and, and um, we had a keynote speaker and it was at the Stanley hotel and she was basically studying. Um, she was imaging like um, brains, but of, of flies. And because they, I don't know, they reproduce at an insanely high rate. And basically, this sounds really grotesque. Fly, fly brain MRI. That's what I'm, that's what I'm. No, I mean, well, she was, she, she was taking and measuring like proteins and like basically looking Picturing at this. Picturing the machine being this big. No. They're like exploding in it. Yeah, yeah no, no I, I, no, but like, so, so basically it was varying degrees of like chopping off the head while like the flies were in copulation and like, you know, do like, do like to like preserve like the. We're going to need a disclaimer at the beginning of this now. I know, but like, and, and I have to, but I remember just basically the title of this woman's was about like, you know, copulation from like, like a bunny rabbit to the human. Like it was, it was really interesting. Her whole, she was basically studying, you know, um, sex and hormones in the brain. Um, but yeah, it tracks. So, it tracks. It tracks. Um, we a lot digress. Of interesting things. <laughs> the brain is cool. We don't understand it all just like we don't understand uteruses. So this, this is kind of like, you know, full circle there. The brain is a black box. The uterus is a black box. What happens in there? We don't know. But they communicate apparently. So, <laughs> but there is an access. So to close things out before Keely just murders us um, on air, we have to get to society slam. And I'm wondering if one of you guys want to read the first one um, about something that we've kind of touched on already a little bit. I'll go ahead and read it. Um, so hi, legend ladies. Oh, thank you. Um, <laughs> there, I was wondering if we're still collaborating with Aura Ring and whether there are any offers for uh, the listeners. Um, and I'm considering getting one, but it's a chunk of change. So wanted to make sure it's a good investment and make sure I'm getting any deals I could, but also would you recommend it? So that's the main question. Would we recommend it? I think all three of us are wearing ours. Yeah. Oh, Keely's muted, but I think she's charging hers. Yeah. Charging. <laughs> Yeah. Um, but yeah, we're, we don't have a current partnership with them and we actually never had like a, like a deal for listen. I think they actually could sign up and not have to pay like the initial, the initial monthly fees for six months or something, but we don't have a current deal with them, but we're all still using them. And I actually like to add that I've, I've broken mine twice. Like I've killed the battery. Like I am a good wear tester because I destroy these things and their customer service is amazing. Like they like walk me through the stuff and then like they've replaced it twice, which 
you shouldn't have to replace it that much. But I want to say customer service is amazing, which gives me a lot of confidence in like saying like they're good people to work with more than anything. Yeah, I love my aura ring. I just got JT to buy one and, you know, nice. gave him my little like personal discount. Like we can all give you a $40 discount, but <laughs> no <laughs> kickback to us or anything. But if you want 40 bucks off, just sell it into our DMs. Um, but <laughs> I feel like honestly, like I love mine so much. They keep coming out with new features too. And now they're doing like big beta daily and daily stress stuff. And then the daily stressor, which is really cool. And they're doing beta tests. Like I just got asked to participate in one about cash caffeine use same and I said no because I want to keep drinking coffee but <laughs> no you just can't drink coffee within six hours of bedtime oh got it okay I, yeah. didn't read I was scared but anyways they're Dude, doing read, read the study Keely well I was talking to my friend who has two children and we were talking about the study and she was like there's no way I'm doing it like I just took her word for it because you know I, I felt bad for her of course she's not going to do it if she thought it meant no coffee because she has two crazies so I just took her word for it. I shouldn't have done it. But anyways, highly recommend. And I think the coolest thing too, so I currently have an IUD, but I am pulling it in the near term actually, um, because hopefully this time next year we'll be pregnant, which is maybe not news to people, but yeah, I would like to, I would like to get pregnant next fall. Um, baby in 2025 is the goal. Welcome to my world. Um, but we'll be using natural cycles, which I think Keely, you've experimented with a little bit and it's a FDA approved app. Um, for birth control um and it links to aura so they use things like body temperature and aura has actually been used in clinical studies um with uc davis um to they can predict pregnancy like seven days before uh, an actual pregnancy test like an at-home pregnancy test can just due to like body temperature change and changes in resting heart rate and heart rate variability so it's really really cool um it's definitely like a habit tracker for sure like it's just like hey you should go to bed and you're like oh right i should wind down i should go to bed but I think there's some practical implications, particularly if you're a female listener um, or you're considering uh, it being an alternative, like or, an, or a good alternative to birth control or considering using it for um, kind of tracking a multitude of things. I think it has a lot of a lot of value. It is an investment up front, but I do think that there's a lot of promise there. Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah. That seems like a good concluding statement. <laughs> Slide into our DMs if you want to know more. Um I'll read the next one, and this will be kind of where we close out today. So it says, hey, hi, hello to Corinne, Keely, and Hillary. Um, I hope you are all well. My name is Aaron. I hope it's okay that we say that. Um, one of our South African fans. Ah, see you soon. Absolutely love the pod and all it has to offer. First, I want to tell you guys something that I'm proud of. I recently completed my first trail marathon, which is actually my first marathon ever. Heck yeah. Um in the times where I was in the pain cave, I circulated the NB nuggets of advice and I that I've gleaned from you all. So thank you. Big heart emoji. I am moving to Colorado for three months to work in Aspen. Ah, and I have two questions. Do you guys have ha no, um, have any running, I think it's supposed to be running groups in the area. So kind of looking for people to run with. I don't think it's grapes. I think it's groups. Um, looking for people to run with in the area as well as, you know, trying to run in the actual, actual cold. If we have any advice, they did listen, go back and listen to our, um, cold weather running podcast, but they're wondering if we have any personal preferences, um, and yeah, thank good luck to me at, at Ultraville Cape Town. Thanks, you. Yeah. So, any um, groups in the area? I think um, Hill. Do you have any Aspen-based running group recommendations? 
Uh, well, first of all, I just have to throw in a little side good thing. It's not Vail that you're going to. Anyways, um, just kidding. Uh, so uh, in Aspen in particular, I mean, there, there's obviously groups in Boulder, but in Aspen, I mean, I do know a few people that live in the area, but of course, um, um, like in the car- carbon, in that, the Roaring Fork Valley, like in, in, yeah. Car- in Carbondale, there's a lot of good groups. Like I know Zoe Rome is there with her partner, um, TJ the Carbondale well. group, the, the running shop there does a Thursday night group run. I'm pretty they sure. They do. Right. So it's like my, my go-to would just go to a running store and they usually have like a group run or at least people who know like where the group runs are. I know, um, Mm, yeah, just some other people that kind of live in that area. Um, Zach Russell, he's also my friend who lives, um, who lives down there. What Hillary is saying is slide into her DMs specifically, <laughs> Aaron, when you're listening to this, and she will just shoot you all the information. Or connect you with the people that I know that live there. Yeah, mm-hmm. exactly. There's some good folks that live in the area. So we'll mm-hmm. try to connect you into that community. This is our this is our like one-on-one. This is our new dating app <laughs> coming out. It's like slide into our DMs and we'll find you a boyfriend. No, we're gonna find you a running oh, group. That's our God. goal. Okay. And they um, might have a boyfriend for you. So who knows? Possible. Um, okay. Any personal running wrecks? Does anyone have any general or broader running wrecks um, for running in the cold weather? Any personal favorites? I will start. I'm calling dibs. Um, I'm a mittens person. Well, my hands are, my hands generally stay pretty warm when I'm running way warmer than when I'm biking or skiing, et cetera. But I default to mittens a lot. And I do that because when my hands are really cold, I can, instead of my, when my hands are in gloves and my fingers are all separated, they don't get that like penguin effect of group warmth. Mm-hmm. So I'm personally a mittens person. So if you got glove gripes or cold hands, um, I default to getting a pair of mittens, like a nice lightweight pair of mittens are going to be warmer than a lightweight, lightweight pair of gloves. Yeah. My favorite thing to piggyback off of that too, is like for, if you're running uphill, obviously it's like, you can layer. Sometimes I bring two, like a pair of gloves for the uphill and then like mittens for the down if I get cold. But mm, totally. a, a recent hack that I have is uh, this Brooks, they have a nice pair of gloves where it's, it's gloves. And then they have an over mitten, which is just, it's honestly just like a little, almost like windproof layer. And that is literally enough to kind of insulate and just like kind of just push back some of the heat to your fingers. Uh, so I really love that. And then my bum gets cold. So I wear like just like little shorts underneath my running pants if it gets too cold. Yeah. One extra layer of insulation can go, mm-hmm. go a long way. Same thing skiing. Mm-hmm. We'd wear like an insulative, like pair of shorts under our, our ski tights or ski pants to keep our, keep our bums a little bit warmer. Um, and I'm all about wool too. Really, really dig like a nice wool, um, base layer. Keely, what do you have? Mm, I think I'm also in the wool base layer camp, but I think a good vest you can, you can invest in, Mm -hmm. (laughs) um, like not a running vest, but like a little like puffy windbreaker vest. Yeah. So so something that's going to like keep your core warm, but maybe not be quite as heat trapping as a, as a jacket. Yeah. And then my favorite headband is Skeeta right now. They have like flower prints and they're so cute and they're very warm. So yeah, they do fleece lined and they do non fleece lined and they're great headbands. Yeah. And I have no affiliation to them. They're just my fave. Uh, Mm -hmm. Another Corinne owns Skeeta. So we can, we can rep Skeeta. Um, (laughs) I grew, I grew up cross country skiing against other Corinne and we were in the same category or the same age and so I lost I lost a junior national race to her by less than half a second Nordic skiing and I was like I'm not even the top Corinne today like that kind of sucks um so yeah give Skeeta a shout out okay 
we digress one more time. Um, thank you all for sticking around this long. If you like the podcast, um, whatever app you're listening on, go and leave us five stars, please. Maybe six stars if you can swing it. Um, and a really, really nice review saying like wonderful things about us that would help our egos and other people just like you find the podcast. Um, I think that's it. I think that's all the groveling I need to do for today. Uh, so <laughs> until next time, we'll see you on the trails. Bye.